Greetings everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Here we are again with number four of our series of mini power cuts, all designed to keep you inspired over the holiday season while our team takes a bit of a break to eat mince pies, drink eggnog and obviously plot big things for next year. On that note, actually, if there are any topics or people that you think should be on the show next year, get in touch. Some of the best guest recommendations have come from you, the Inside Influence community. Plus, I just kind of always want to know what you're reading, who you're following and what you're curious about right now. So jump onto all the socials, you know the ones, and let us know. In today's flashback episode, we bring you Dory Clark, who I have to say has the dubious honor of being the only guest I have ever invited back onto the podcast three times. A fact that should give you an idea of just how much I value her wisdom. Plus, she's just an all-round kind of awesome human being. Dory is one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world. Author of Stand Out, Reinventing You and her latest bestseller, The Long Game. How to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. Could there have been a better year for this book to be published? It is also, believe me, a must. Buy it, devour it, if you are looking to reinvent any part of your life next year. In this part of our conversation, she dives right into the question, what do I need to start working on today in order to have the influence or life that I want 10 years from now? including the moment that she realized that she needed to start playing a longer game if she was ever going to create a life by her own design, by her own making and of her own rules. She also talks about the importance of creating white space in our schedules to rethink the road that we're on and why we all need to learn the art of saying no, I say this for myself as much for anybody else, so that we can start saying a big fat yes to all the things that count. If you're taking some time out right now to rethink the year ahead, then you're going to need a pen and paper for this one. With that said, sit back, grab a coffee and listen to the voice of your long-term future calling, the amazing Dory Clark. That's what I wanted to talk to you about today, that future proofing. And what amazed me was I actually said to my team, I was like, I'd love to get Dory. Can we get Dory back on the podcast again? And I had no idea that you had a new book coming out at the time. I, I think you were just finishing writing it. And when the book arrived, when it landed in my inbox, I was like, this is the exact topic. This is the exact topic that I wanted to talk to you about because I have been watching you invent and reinvent and you know we're going to be talking about this language place bets over the past few years and I have been observing and admiring how you were placing all these bets trying all these different things building yourself an ecosystem I didn't know why no one saw a pandemic coming I didn't know the realizations that you had had but I was noticing that you were shifting your business model shifting your focus to build something new and I wanted to talk to you about your experiences doing that so we'll 
we'll get to that, but I wanted to start where the book starts. And that was with a 3.30 a.m. alarm call. Can you talk to me about that moment and what it sparked for you? Yeah, absolutely. So in the long game, I begin with a scene <laughs> from my life, which was kind of kind of a depressing moment. Um, I had I woke up kind of with a start in a panic and uh, you know it's those those moments where you're like wait what what's going on what's happening and then you realize like oh oh this isn't bad this is just my alarm right I wanted my alarm to go off wait why did I want my alarm to go off and you have to piece it all together and the reason was that I this particular day before COVID I had a 5 30 flight that I had to catch at the airport in New York and I you know was rushing to to get to get everything ready for that and i flew to california had an entire day of meetings in california um you know which is a, a six hour flight and uh just went to bed and collapsed had a second day of meetings flew to atlanta had more meetings and at the end of all of it i just i thought oh you know why why am i doing this to myself and it it all it all worked well that week. It all came off like miraculously. You know, all the flights were on time, and you know, I didn't get sick, and it 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 worked. You know, I could stuff it in, but I realized that it was very structurally unsound, <laughs> and that that's great language. It, that's that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, thank you. And it just it couldn't it couldn't really hold forever. And uh, I realized that I was making choices, whether I was conscious or not to create this structure and that probably if I was smart that I would need to begin reevaluating it. You know, that's one of the interesting intersections between your world and mine. I had a, a similar moment. So when I read that as the first pages of your books, I had a business with offices, US, um, Australia, people based all over the world and I was flying all over the world. And I remember this one night in Indianapolis when I couldn't sleep. I was so jet lagged. I was so tired. There was so, I had so many places that I was supposed to be. And I was just wandering the streets of Indianapolis at like 3 a.m. in the morning. And I found there was a church and there was these steps. I still remember there was these steps leading up to the church. And I sat. It wasn't a religious moment for me, but I sat on these steps. And I remember thinking at the time, take a photo of yourself. And so I have this awful blurry, miserable selfie still on my phone. And the thinking at the time, my half adult brain was thinking, take a photo of yourself right now because you need to remember to do something about this. Wow. You need to remember how this feels so you change it. Ooh, I love that. Wow. Was it a turning point, Julie? Did you actually? It was a complete, it was absolutely one of the most pivotal turning points of my life, that particular moment. And even now, you know, you're talking seven or eight years later, even now I find it very hard to look at that photo. Wow. Because I remember it that vividly. So, you know, you've had this nagging feeling, and I think we've all had this nagging feeling that this has got to, this is coming to an end. I'm not at the end yet, but this has got to come to an end in one way, shape, or form. And either I consciously do it, or I will be forced to do it, or, you know, some might say subconsciously, I will start to self-sabotage from this point, because somewhere in me, I've decided that this can't go on. Um, that The journey that that puts you on it felt like a very, from the book, it felt like a very deliberate journey not to react to the situation, not to throw your hands up in the air and go, that's it, I quit, I'm done, I'm cancelling everything, I'm going home, but more a, a conscious choice to design what you wanted your life to look like from that point. Is is that true? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I ultimately writing the long game, you know, this is a book about long-term thinking, strategic thinking. Fundamentally to me, it's a book about being proactive. I think that if we want to be happy long-term, if we want to actually have a chance to ensure that our lives turn out the way that we want, we have to be proactive about it. I mean, COVID has put everybody back on their heels for the past 18 months. And largely we've been forced to be reactive because, you know, you don't really have a choice when uh, there's public health issues and government is telling you to do different things and your business is evolving and you have to reshape it. Like, I get it. Agility is good. Uh, we are not dissing agility, but also being reactive and continually adapting uh, all the time to external stimuli, it only goes so far and we can only stand it so long. I think that long-term thinking is a way of fighting back. I think it's a reclamation and I think it's a way of putting our stake in the ground and saying, we're actually going to head somewhere. We are going to call this pitch and we're not going to be bossed around by circumstance forever. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, ever that things go perfectly according to plan, but it means that you can set your direction and work to make things be directionally correct uh, so that you have a, at least a better chance of, uh, of ending where you want to. And I think that's definitely one of the questions that COVID has raised. And you put it beautifully in your book, which is you said about going to write this book, COVID hit. And the question became, you know, does long-term thinking even matter in a world, you know, where in the short term, anything can happen to change the rules? What, what would your answer be to that question now? Well, I, I would say yes. <laughs> I, th I, think, I think it does. And I, I think that for me, long-term thinking is ultimately about understanding and appreciating that the things that are most valuable, ultimately, whatever that is for, for you, whatever someone's individual goals are, whether it's a career goal or a personal goal, the things that are most worthwhile usually do take longer than we want them to. They usually are harder or more complicated. That's what makes them valuable is that it's something that not everybody can attain. But when you do, it's so incredibly powerful and meaningful. And the part that has frustrated me so often, it, whether I'm observing coaching clients or, you know, I run an online community called Recognized Expert that that has, you know, 600 plus people that have been through it. So I've had a lot of opportunity to get a longitudinal perspective um, from, from a fairly large group of people to see how they have approached building their platform, getting their ideas out there. And the, the thing that is most painful for me is when smart, talented people give up too soon on ideas that actually are really good ideas, but it's just that, you know, they take longer than they think. And so I wanted to write the long game as a way of almost helping people frame it so that it's easier for them to get through those dark periods where it becomes really impossible in those moments to tell whether something's not working or whether something is not working yet. And to hopefully give them the kind of structure and framework and encouragement that they need so that they can keep going to get to that destination. When you say give up too soon, I just want to pick up on that for a second, because, you know, you're very clear in the book that this is not what do I want to happen next year necessarily. 
And you tell this beautiful story about the royal family, I think, in Monaco who brought in a consultant and they said, you know, this we're talking lifetime generational legacies here. If you can shift some things for this particular generation. For most of us, it lives somewhere in between, like a year and a generational legacy. What what timeline do you recommend to think about when you're starting on this field of long-term thinking? Well, I think there's a few answers to it. For me personally, uh, and you know, this is this is not necessarily a prescription for everyone, but for me personally, I like to think in ten-year horizons, and I'll tell you actually why. Part of why I love thinking in ten-year horizons to me, it's so much better than thinking in like a three to five-year horizon. Is that when you have a ten-year horizon, you don't have to know how you're going to do it. Mm. <laughs> There's something mm. so comforting about how good that. does that feel. <laughs> You could just say, I, you know, I want to do this thing. And people say, well, how are you going to do it? It's like, you know what? I don't know. I don't, I don't freaking need to know because all you need to know is the next step. Maybe the next step is I'll read a book. Maybe the next step is I'll talk to a guy. But by doing the next step, you learn what the next step is after that. And I promise you by, by year five, you will have a much clearer view of what it takes to succeed in year 10. I've, I've said that this particular thing on the podcast so many times that if I look over the trajectory of my career, any moment that has made me take a quantum leap, you know, like one of those big moments that takes you forward has always been something that had nothing to do with a strategy of mine. But it's because I was executing on a, on a strategy that another door I could never have foreseen opened. Another person picked up the phone I didn't even know existed. So it's always at a tangent. You know, the thing you're going for, the opportunities that come, they're the tangents. You can't plan for those. That's right. Yeah, so true. So let's talk about why we don't for a second, because I think that that's important. You know, we should. Why don't we? The first one that you talk about in the book is I'll think in the long term when I can take a breath. And I, I recognize that one really, really well. Um, why is that a myth? The, the myth of taking a breath? Yes. Well, obviously, we all know we're busy, right? And that and that is not wrong. We are all busy. So, so this is not. Um, it's it's it may be it may be a little bit of an excuse, but it's also not untrue. So we have to recognize that. Um, there's crazy stats that I have in the book. You know, one one of them, uh, which which is one of my favorites, just in a horrifying sense, is that the average professional has 62 meetings per month. I mean, you wonder like why is it I can't get anything done? Well, 62 meetings per month. It sounds so horrifying, but if you actually think about it, what it breaks down to is two to three meetings per week workday which of course is perfectly normal. Most professionals do in fact have that, you know, we, we don't like add it up that way, but it's like, oh my God, that's a lot. If you did the maths on that, you know, if you, if you correlated that just in a spreadsheet very quickly, if you, if you had the time, which apparently we don't, um, you know, if you correlated meetings with outcomes, if you could actually look at those 63 and then could you identify 63 outcomes or even half or even a quarter or maybe even five? Exactly. Exactly. It's, I mean, yeah, you subject it to rigorous analysis and you realize like, oh, wow, that's a lot of wasted time. So we got the meetings, we got the emails, that is all true. But the part that was especially fascinating for me as I dug deeper 
into this question of why is it we don't really make time for strategic thinking is there were two essentially hidden reasons. The first one is that research, notably by Sylvia Baletza from Columbia Business School, has shown that there is a clear, at least in most Western societies, there's a clear status associated with busyness. That if you review, you know, oh, how are you doing? Oh, crazy busy. And people say this as like a badge of honor. And it is because it it is essentially a way of telegraphing to people, I'm in demand, I'm popular, the world can't do without me. And if we actually give that up, if we were if we were to operationalize the thing we claim we want, which is to be less busy, it would actually put that status in jeopardy, at least in our own minds. So that's one piece. The second piece is that, frankly, busyness is a form of avoidance. Because if we have hard questions to ask, like, is this the right job for me? <laughs> is this the right career for me? Or even just, oh my God, I need to do X. I don't really know where to start with X. Well, you know what? Just keep doing that thing you're already doing. And even if it's not the right thing, it'll distract you enough that you don't have to ask the hard questions. And it's a good story, right? And I mean, goodness knows I'm an expert at it. I would, I would, I would get to that, that thing, but I've got so much on right now. You know, there's so many things right now. You know, I've got young children, I've got a business, I've got a podcast. Who's got the time? Who's got the time for this stuff? When the truth is that, and this is, you know, no denying that everybody's got a lot on their plate, but the truth is, and we're going to talk about this, that there would be periods that I could create if I if I committed myself to doing so. That's right. And I believe that's very true for my own life. I'm not speaking for anybody else's, but I believe it's very true for my own. So if the, if the opposite of busy is white space, which is what you talk about in the book, let's talk about white space. And that white space, my definition in my head being creating conscious time to reevaluate, to rethink the trajectory of where you're going and what you want to create. What does white space look like for you? Let's take after that 3.30 a.m. alarm clock call. What, what does white space look like when we create it? Yeah. So... The good news about white space is it can, I mean, ultimately it can look the way we want, but sometimes if we, you know, we, we do have a lot of agency in this, but it's helpful to have examples because many of us just have no idea. We're like, I don't even know what I would do. I don't even know where I would start. So I'll give you a couple of examples from my own life. So one is that I am a, a big fan in terms of my own scheduling. Now, you know, caveat, when I'm doing a book launch, for instance, all this is out the window because all I'm doing is like promotion all the time. But under more normal circumstances where there's not this like crazy looming deadline, I like, and I've done this for years, to structure my calendar according to some principles that Paul Graham elucidated, who is the founder of Y Combinator, a Silicon Valley accelerator. And he he talked about this, he sort of broke this down for like different jobs, different classes of people. But what I've discovered is certainly when you're an entrepreneur, but I would actually argue for almost any professional, you kind of need to have both yourself. And so he talks about manager time and maker time. And so for managers, right, it's, it's all about like meeting, meeting, call, call, because you have to move things forward. For makers, you need a lot of white space. You need unscheduled time to do your deep work, whether that's writing a book or coding or whatever it is. And so I actually try to separate it out on days. So I again, under more normal circumstances, we'll have manager days and maker days. And on the, ma on the manager days, I mean, it's back to back. It's crazy. It's, you know, all, all the stuff. 
But the reason I do it and it's so frenetic and not necessarily that fun is so that on the maker days, I have nothing, I have nothing planned. And of course the key is you don't blow that time with cat videos, you do your thing and you can actually make some progress. I love you said, I love the fact that you said blow your, your time with cat videos. I was, <laughs> I was thinking the opposite there, which, you know, I've, I've done this in my own calendar. Um, it's clear in my calendar. My team know it's clear in my calendar and I am the worst. Uh, you know, it's always the case, you know, you put a, you put a boundary up and the universe will just kind of poke it for a while just to see. And I found when I did it, every single human being that I needed to talk to or that needed to talk to me, they were only ever available on that day. That's you know? funny. And so you, you've got to hold it. You know, it's one thing to do it, but you've got to hold That's it. That's right. And the universe will eventually move around you, but you've got to, you've got to keep the line. What's the first question that you ask in that white space? And we're talking about, you know, big white spaces here, big reconsidering, big th long-term thinking. Is there a question that you start with? Mm. Well, one of the questions that I like to start with is, and, and this, this is sort of taking it to uh, a higher level, is what kind of a person do I want to be? Because so often we start with tactics. We start with like, well, what is the thing I want to do? What is the thing I want to do in the next week or the next year? Okay, well, you know, I mean, that's not a terrible question to ask. But if we sort of start with first principles, it's what kind of person do I want to be? And then what do I need to, to do? <laughs> what are the actions in order to get there? And so uh, in the long game, I actually tell the story of a, a friend of mine named Alyssa Cohn. And she ended up, she's an executive coach. This is not her world. She signed up for an improv beatbox freestyle rap class. And she took this rap class and she almost dropped out because she, she goes for the first day and it's like, you know, a bunch of guys who are like, you know, wearing hoodies and, and baseball caps and they're all 30 years younger than her. And they're like, practically professional rappers they're so good and she's like oh my god i've never rapped i only like sing along to the hamilton soundtrack and she was so you know like ah! and she almost quit and she emailed the instructor and was like i don't know i don't know that this is the right thing for me and he wrote back and it was very powerful for her because he said look the goal is not to turn you into a rapper the goal is to help you become a more creative and expressive person and she thought, oh, right, that actually was my goal, wasn't it? <laughs> and she realized, all right, well, I've got I've to gotta pony up here. I've got to sit through this because becoming a more creative and expressive person means that I might, in fact, be a really bad rapper, but I am going to take this rap class. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting 
your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.